This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everyone. Welcome to By the Book. I'm Sharmila Ganesan. And as always, my fellow eager reader, Lee Chui Lin. Hello, eager reader from childhood, which is part of what we're talking about today. Yes, uh, because today we are essentially looking at a program called My Readers that works to improve literacy in children and particularly this notion of literacy, right, which is something that gets brought up a lot. Um, And so we thought we'd get some insight into what goes into making sure this is something we can achieve. And so joining us today is Rachel Francis, who is CEO of My Readers. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sharmila. Thank you, Lynn. So start off by telling us about My Readers and how it came to be. So My Readers were started by teachers. So we were teaching in secondary schools and had discovered that, you know, um, a lot of our students were struggling to read basic English sentences or follow lessons in the classroom. So, you know, there was a gap there and we were quite confronted by the fact that they had gone through so many years of schooling but were not able to do this very basic thing that they would have learned uh, in year one, year two, or even in kindergarten if they had attended. So then there was that need to bridge the gap. And so um, the co-founders of My Readers, uh, Alex, Karis, Rachel, and Sue, had decided to create their own literacy toolkit um, and build it into a structured reading program. And uh, the first version of it was actually with a student mentor. So students were reading with other students using the materials. So that's the reason why uh, the program came about. But then realizing that, you know, more communities and more schools needed. So we decided to start uh, a social enterprise and work on sharing that with the world, with the country. So uh, this might seem like an obvious question, right? But why is it so important for students to not fall behind when it comes to reading? So the thing that we know and we see at, at, um, or at least we had experienced that firsthand as teachers, that it was more than just reading, it affected their whole lives. And I think sometimes uh, people who are perfectly literate in the majority language, and I want to make this a point, uh, when sometimes when we say someone is illiterate, we are uh, excluding or not talking about the fact that maybe they are actually literate in another language, in Mandarin, in Tamil, but we talk about English and BM. But, you know, just not being able to read affects so many things in a person's life. Them being able to understand information around them, them being able to uh, perform simple tasks like filling up a form at the bank. Uh, But bigger than that, what we see is that it stops them from being to make informed life choices when you are faced with information about the vaccination, for example, how do you verify whether this information that you're hearing is true or not true? You cannot go to the grocery store, I understand the nutritional information contained in your food. It's beyond just being able to read. Suddenly, it's about your whole life and about making decisions for yourself. So what are some of the challenges when it comes to achieving full literacy here in Malaysia? So I would start uh, with the first one being that there is not enough awareness that literacy is a problem in in Malaysia. If we Google our national stats, it's something like 94.8. So it looks like actually literacy is not a problem in Malaysia. Everyone is literate or a large population of people are literate. So that's one problem, not knowing how big a problem 
literacy really is there are a lot of children in our schools that are unable to read even though they've been in school for a long time and this is really because there are so many factors to it um, factors like the kind of household a child grows up in so when a parent is working two jobs three jobs doesn't have time to spend time with their child doesn't have time to provide that parental support at home there's so many things like that not enough awareness on a government level not enough awareness on a on a community level um, not enough support books are expensive even the middle income parents don't necessarily know where to begin with teaching their child how to read so I think what we see is a resource gap between um, socioeconomic levels as well if we look at the program itself, right, what goes into shaping it as well as the materials that you use in the program? So let me just start with the modules, I guess. We start with the basic building blocks of teaching children how to read, which is phonics. And I didn't learn phonics in school. So phonics is the sound system of the language. English is a difficult language to learn. Um, and so we start with the building blocks, which is the sound system. And then from there, progressing into, you know, uh, how do you then combine sounds together to sound a word and then progressing into fluency and comprehension. So we follow a very well-researched uh, formula as to how to get a child to start reading and then make sense of what they're reading. So that's one part of it. The other part is the program really focuses on if we study or if we research uh, effective intervention programs. It's having a small group or individualized attention. So let's picture this. A child is in a classroom and unable to read. A teacher could try to run a remedial program in a large group, but the children are all probably progressing at different stages. So they will not benefit from this large group remedial program. So what we do then is get one volunteer to read with one student. So it's individualized attention. There are modules, but the volunteer progresses at the pace of the child, which means that if they are unable to uh, master the sound that we're learning for this week, we could spend two weeks on it. And that's okay. It doesn't affect the class because the teacher only has one student. So of course, it has also mean you know, developing the kind of training that is suitable for everyday people. So our volunteers are not teachers by professions. They are not trained as teachers. So it was then about, so Caris and uh, Caris wrote our workbooks and she wrote it in a way that even a 10-year-old child can teach it because it's repetitive, it's structured, it's so easy to follow. So just like that, we train our volunteers to be able to conduct the, the reading with our students. So in a way now, anybody could learn how to read with a child, whether or not you learn phonics in school yourself. And I think another piece that we've added into this equation very recently, starting year 2020, is parents. So, you know, you could do this intervention, but if the parent is not supporting a reading habit at home, if the parent is not being part of that picture, there's no support afforded, then that may not be a long-lasting change as well. So now parents are being explicitly involved in the program for some of our parents. They do get uh, literacy home packs for activities they can do with their children and it's bilingual. So they could um, 
run these activities with their children. We run webinars for parents. We give them tips on how to do this at home. So now if a parent can support literacy habits at home, this like then um, magnifies the impact because now they can support more children than the children that are in our program. How big a part do stories and, and books play in this program versus straight up study materials and educational materials? So what happens is they start out with looking at letters, right? Letters and learning the sounds. And then they will see a little bit of sentences. But we do teach our volunteers to, you know, ask questions about this sentence. It's something that they can interact with and about. Let's give an example. Let's, let's say that's a sentence. Then, you know, asking the child, like, have you seen an ant? Do you know what an ant is? And then interacting over that. But we also have a set of storybooks that we progress to. So after the child learns the individual um, sounds and they progress from the phonics uh, module, they then progress into uh, blending, which is learning how to sound words. Uh, and when this learn how to sound these words, we have this uh, set called the decodables, where it's mostly three-letter words. So this is Pat. Uh, Pat is one of the characters in our books. So, you know, then they learn to read three-letter words and it's a whole storybook, but it's a children's storybook. So there are like, there's like one sentence per page and there's lots of pictures in it. So then the volunteer interacts with the child by saying, oh, what can you see in this picture? So we use a lot of reading comprehension strategies as we read the books as well. We're speaking with Rachel Francis, who is CEO of My Readers, a social enterprise that works to improve literacy in children. Let us know what books helped you become a better reader. You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. We'll continue our conversation after this, so keep it here on By the Book, BFM 89.9. Brainy, fancy material. BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn. And today we're speaking with Rachel Francis, CEO of My Readers. And uh, we're speaking about what they do. They're a social enterprise that works to improve literacy amongst children. Uh, Rachel, you sort of explained earlier how the program works and the kinds of um, modules that you use. I wanted to expand the conversation a little bit into um, your own entry point into this. Tell us about your relationship with reading. How has it informed and influenced your life over the years? That's a very interesting question. And I sometimes forget the story. So, you know, uh, I had to go, go back to my childhood as well. So my parents were educated till from five, um, but they could read and write. They were, you know, literate in both English and BM. So what happened was, so I grew up in a fairly low income family. And um, when I was young, a lot of family members encouraged that reading habit. So before I went to kindergarten, I was already able to read. Um, but how we got books, I think that's, an, that's a story that I, I should share. So we couldn't afford new books. So my parents took us to the secondhand bookstore, you know, where we stay for hours and get to pick like a selected number of books. There's always a number like, okay, today you can take this number of books or this at least books that cost this much and and I remember that an any lightened book would cost something like five ringgit 
you know, and uh, some days I want to get more, but my parents would say, oh, we can get it when we return this one. So it was very heartbreaking for me to part with some of my books, but I really enjoyed reading. So to get a new book, I had to pass up the one that I currently had to get a new one. So I, I borrowed a lot of books um, from my school library as well. So I read everything from children's storybooks to fact books to fiction to chick lit to thrillers. Um, a whole lot of, of books. Now, now I enjoy a lot more nonfiction and, and uh, Asian narratives. So we eventually had a bookshelf full of books, but it's only later in life where I understand what a privilege that was because books in Malaysia are really, really expensive. Um, but when I was in Form 6, I got to experience the flip, flip side. I was um, volunteering as a literacy teacher um, for year one students who, who couldn't read and write or needed basic literacy um, and numeracy. That's when I understood that not every child grew up in a household like I did, where they had access to books. Um, and so moving on into adulthood, so I, after Form 6, I could afford my own books and I started to buy them, buy brand new books, you know, for the first time. Um, and then fast forward, I took a degree in English language and part of my, I, I studied literature. So I got to be exposed to then a lot of other books that I hadn't, um, hadn't read growing up. Um, but then, and then I joined um, Teach for Malaysia and I went to a rural school in Pahang. And, and I saw more kids that didn't grow up like me either. So the only exposure that they had to, let's just say English storybooks or English books was the textbooks that they had. So they didn't experience that, that you could read for, for leisure. And so what I did at that point, because my collection was already quite big. So what I did, I'm surprised that I did this because I was posted uh, in Pahang for, for a short period of time, but I brought a lot of books with me. So every time I was to, to go into a classroom as a relief teacher, I would bring a lot of books with me. So this is an optional activity that I used to give my students. So kind of like I was a moving library where the kids could borrow whichever books that they wanted to read because I felt like it was important to expose them to the idea that you could pick something to read and nobody is going to grade how well you read or how long you read for or what you can produce after reading this book. You know, something that I was thinking about is uh, when I was growing up and learning to read, a big part of that was having, um, you know, someone read to me, right? It begins with that. Someone reads with to you and then eventually with you and then you start reading independently. And it strikes me that uh, the point about the volunteers and the mentorship is that that's a part of it, right? You have somebody who's actually there with you, who's going to read with you. Could you talk to us about the importance of that, of having that kind of um, companionship or, or that kind of support throughout the process? I think, um, especially when someone is just learning how to read, that, that support is important because you don't know whether you're making a mistake. You don't know whether you're saying this correctly. And for the most part, if you're just starting out to read, you don't know what you are reading. So having that person read with you. And I think that's something that, we're, that I find myself contending with a lot as we try to scale our program. How would I do this if I remove the adult or like the, the person in the picture, because that's a huge part. They, students get live feedback 
Um, so now we read over WhatsApp with each with the students. So the volunteer sends across a voice note, the child repeats that. And so exactly what you said, Lynn, like you hear someone read to you and then you read with them and then only you read to them. It, it's a process. So we, we really use that whole process as well with starting with the volunteer reading to the child and at the beginning, maybe the child will be just echoing what the volunteer says but without any comprehension of what that means. So it's really that, that live feedback that is the reason why we have an adult or like have a person present with the child. We've tried a self-paced learning one and it still works. So we provide the child with videos where they play and they repeat. They don't have feedback. No one is there to correct them live. But at least um, there's still that someone reading to you and you can repeat and read the way they would read, yeah. Curious, are there particular titles or particular kinds of titles that really resonate with the children you work with? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I think for children just learning how to read, I think like if you tell me you have a collection of Dr. Seuss series, I'd be very impressed. So if you tell me you have rolled out series, and I'd be very impressed. But if I tell a learner from a from a family that didn't have books growing up, I, I talk about a title that meant that would mean nothing to them. There's no significance to it, right? So what we found really works with younger learners or students just learning how to read is picture books. So at the end of last year, because we, we try to put books into the program as well, which means that at the end of the program, as a reward, we want to give them storybooks that they can read at home and read at their own pace. So what I did was spend hours at the Big Bad Wolf looking through storybooks that they would enjoy reading. So I looked for a lot of pictures, very few words, but also really suited to their level. So that's something that we try to do as well. So research shows that, you know, to enjoy reading or to have a somewhat non-stressful reading experience books should be of a certain level and um, within your range so there's an upper limit and there's a lower limit and it's not a hard and fast rule that you can only read these books but it's then they won't struggle if they read books at that pace so for for us it's really just finding the right books for them the ones that also are not overwhelming for a learner that's just learning to read could you share uh, some experiences or anecdotes from the program that have particularly stayed with you I think from, for me, for the most part, it's the kind of self-belief that the children develop at the end of the day. So, you know, we have uh, students who, we have, we recorded student testimonies recently, you know, and this child uh, says that they're very appreciative to their volunteer for like patiently reading with them. And now they feel so confident and so comfortable to read. And so this child was saying all of this in English. But at the start of the program, that's not necessarily something that they could say or do. Um, and so I think like the thing that lasts is that relationship that they build with their mentor and that uh, ability that they see in themselves at the end of the day. Do many of the students you work with go on to continue reading for pleasure and for interest? Early on in the program, this is not something that we had. But now I... I we try to ensure that at the end of the program, they do get some books to take home. So it started with actually with one of our communities, the volunteers offered, they wanted to sponsor uh, gifts 
to the children and in the form of books. And then we figured out which student will be able to read which kind of level. And then we gave them gave it to them. But recently, we've started including that into sponsorships as well. Whenever a funder wants to sponsor a program, we put in a budget for books as well. So I think like something that we do know and we notice is that books are a luxury. Not every household will have them. So then it limits what the child can read. Yes, they progress from the program. What do they read now? Right. And then so what we do is make sure that they get to have some books and a variety of topics that they can then uh, progress to reading. And a teacher told me that, you know, the children are very excited to receive the book. So we hope that that's a good sign because we don't track what happens to the books after they've received it. But we are hopeful that that is something that is helpful. And the parents in our program also come back to share that you know, the parent webinars that we've been running to encourage reading habits at home have given them a place to start because before this, they felt very helpless with where to begin because if they are not fully literate themselves, then they don't know what to do. They don't know how to encourage reading habits at home. Broadly speaking, right, and as a reader yourself, do you have advice on how to cultivate a sustained and sustainable reading habit? So I read this book by Daniel Panek. It's called The Rights of the Reader. I'm not sure if either of you have heard it before, but um, it's a very famous book. Uh, it was originally written in French. If I'm not wrong, Daniel Panek is a former teacher and academician. So he has studied it extensively and uh, come up with 10 rights of the reader. I don't remember them anymore, the 10 rights, but it was very interesting to read that as a teacher and make sense of it. So I didn't struggle with developing a reading habit. It was fun for me. That was in the day where we didn't have Netflix. You know, we didn't have the internet. So reading was something that you could do whenever you felt bored. But now you're competing with so many things. So some of the premises that he talks about in his book is that how, how it starts, right? Reading habits usually start because your parents read to you at some point. Um, and so children have this like positive association with reading, which is like, it brings back fond memories and it's fun. But then eventually reading stops becoming fun because when you go to school, you are forced to read and they tell you what to read. They also tell you how to read. So Daniel goes into this whole discussion on like why reading becomes, stops being fun at some point. So he talks about how it's important to one model. So parents should model uh, reading because parents tend to force children to read but they're also always on their phones it's hard to be told to do something that your parents are not doing as well so one is for parents to model that habit but two also to allow them to read whatever they want to read I notice sometimes parents say oh you shouldn't be reading comics or you shouldn't be reading this type of books or you shouldn't be reading this you shouldn't be reading that so two it's also to afford um, children the choice so I think the third one is having an environment that supports that as well. So we, you know, at, at my readers, we know that parents play a very important role in, in all of this. So that's why we invest in teaching parents how to create that positive learning environment at home. And this is something every parent can do, right? It's about making space for it. It's about maybe saying that, okay, we will read at night. This is the that this is the time that we will read. So it's about making it a habit 
and making it part of your routine. So we teach parents how to do this, even if they're not literate. So that's that's really um, some things that are on the top of my mind uh, from the book. But if you can pick up the book, The Rights of the Reader, I highly encourage you to, especially if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, it will really help you understand this thing that you couldn't understand for the longest time because if you had a positive relationship with books and reading, it may be hard to relate to a teenager or a child who refuses to pick up a book. Rachel, if people are interested to help out with my readers, where can they go? If people are interested to find out more about what we do or support the work that we do, they can go to www.myreaders.org.my. Um, there you will find a lot of things like if you would like to buy our toolkit to use it with your children, that's, that's something you can do. If you'd like to get involved in our programs, there are also opportunities to do that. Rachel, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. We've been speaking with Rachel Francis, CEO of My Readers. They're a social enterprise uh, that work to improve literacy in children. Let us know uh, what books did you read when you were a child and what helped you become a better reader? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. us to footnotes and after hearing about literacy and literacy programs uh, we thought it would be nice to close off with perhaps a, a little bit more of a personal conversation on how the both of us became readers how we first learned to read now with the caveat of course um, that becoming readers and literacy um, are not exactly the same thing but I was curious Lynn about how you first became a reader or realized that you were a reader so Rachel actually spoke in her interview about the importance of parents kind of supporting their child's literacy and interest in books and, you know, reinforcing by by reading with them. There are all these things. And I was read to every night of my childhood uh, by my dad, who did all the voices, who, you know, did, did all the stuff. And so um, that kind of spurred my own interest because you get interested in the books, right? And then you start to want to read the books on your own without having somebody read to you. And that's what led me to picking up said books and kind of learning to read myself to sleep rather than having somebody do that for me. And I think that um, this is actually a pathway that would be very terribly familiar to many, many readers. Exactly. Um, that's probably literally what happened to me, except uh, with either my mom or my granddad, um, as you know, and, and me. Um, I know that I can't quite remember when I could read by myself. I also know that I was a relatively early reader because by about three or four, I could read my own, um, you know, picture books and so on. But all of that came from uh, being read to every night and um, having the words set out and making it a fun activity. And as I became older, my mom would also, you know, when she went to work, she would leave me with little activities to do or little sentences to write. Um, we even had, um, I don't know whether these are still things anymore, but these little activity kits with like little buzzer toys that you could use to pick on the right word and things like that. Um, so all of those help. But I do think the lesson that I've taken away from that, because I get asked a lot on account of um, doing a book show and writing about books and so on, by a lot of my friends who are parents, um, how they can get their, their kids to be readers. And honestly, I think the answer is 
that you have to model the behavior. And even if you aren't a reader yourself, and I know that not everyone is, I think you can cultivate the activity together. I think having time to sit down with your child and and read a book to them, or perhaps find something you want to read and then let them read with you. These are all ways that I think makes it a makes it an activity that isn't work, but instead is fun. I don't have clear memories of seeing my parents read, really. Um, my father recently, fairly recently, proudly declared to me that he cannot remember the last time he read a book cover to cover, which I was quite affronted by, you know, as somebody who does this for a living. Um, and, and I could not fully understand why he was so pleased to tell me. But the point is that, that he did say that. And it's true, he reads the newspaper a lot, but I've never seen him really pick up a book. Uh, my mom had books lying around the house, but I don't remember her, you know, on a lazy Sunday afternoon reading a book. Um, and so I, I agree that the modelling of behaviours does not have to be as explicit as, hey there, child you know, in front of your television, look at this alternate activity. You know, it doesn't have to be like that. But that building up of um, of fun and the association of love and companionship with reading, I think is a very important and powerful tie. The other thing I wanted to say was... Um, in relation to this, because I also get this question a lot for the exact same reasons as you. And I think that the prioritization of story to me is everything. And uh, this comes through in the fact that the first time I read a lot of classics came in those, you know, those abbreviated paperbacks that you find um, yes. that are really meant for for children. You know, people, I would say, aged between, I want to say, 8 to 12, that kind of reading bracket. And that's how I read Ben-Hur. That's how I read Count of Monte Cristo. Um, that's how I read a variety of, of stories in that vein. Um, Les Mis, you know, things that on their own were deeply intimidating. I mean, when I saw the actual Penguin editions of these books, I thought, what have I gotten myself into? But because I had that grounding of being a child interested in stories and, you know, learning and reading about Edmund Dante and all these things that were happening to him, I think that also fed that the growing habit of reading in me, that idea that, hey, you know, this is something that's that's addictive. This is something that has a, a forward pull kind of quality. You know, I sometimes forget whether I've ever actually read a classic in its entirety or whether I just read the children's version and in my head, I think I've read it. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was I think there's a lot of value in just having books around and being accessible. Um, and of course, you can do that in two ways. I was lucky enough to be in a household where there were always bookshelves, sometimes books that were much too mature for me. I was going to say, do yeah. we mean appropriate books or no? Not all the time. Not mm. all the time, I have to say. But I also think just having libraries that are accessible everywhere, taking your children to libraries, but also not policing what they might want to read. So letting them run wild, pick out things they want to read, let them read them. Um, I think those are all really fun ways to make reading. Um, again, I think I go back to something you can do voluntarily and something that's fun and something that you can sustain. I would also say, um, I mean, to anybody raising a child, please raise readers. Um, I, I, there's just a lot of value in learning to read and entertain yourself, quite crucially, um, you know, at a relatively young age. And I, I don't think about it very consciously until we do shows like this. And then, and then I find myself thinking about it. But reading has been nothing but a blessing in my life. Like, and I truly mean that. I think that there are so many 
other things that I've learned um, or become better at as a result of being raised as a reader, as a result of not looking at a, a pile of words and thinking, good Lord, I have to go through that. Instead, yay, I get to read the back of a shampoo bottle. And you know that... God, I used to read cereal boxes. Yeah, yeah. Toothpaste. You know, just all these things. You want to read the stuff that's around. And I just think that there is such tremendous value in in raising readers and um, buy secondhand books. Don't, don't, don't be put off by the price. I know that the price was an issue for my parents raising me as a reader. And at a certain point, especially during school holidays, I think the price, the price does rack up. But, you know, secondhand books are your friend. Book rentals were the, yes. were the boon to my family. Um, let us know, how did you first begin reading? What were your early childhood favorites? If you have any you'd like to share, you can WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.